Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Julia Georgia. I am with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University and I'm joined today by Dalibur Rohat with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, today, we are not joined as an exception by Giselle Donnelly. Nevertheless, um, we have have an amazing guest with us, um, Linda Kinstler, who is a contributing writer for The Economist's 1843, and a lot more, but um, more on that from Dalibor. Over to you. Thank you, Julia. So, I'm, yes, I'm thrilled to have Linda finally on the, on the podcast. Linda is a um, journalist, scholar, writer who has worked uh, with Politico, Washington Post, The Atlantic Magazine, many other publications. She's a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley. Uh, she'll be soon a visiting scholar at the Freie Universität in, in, in Berlin. And most importantly, she is the author of uh, Come to Discord and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends, which will be out in the UK with Bloomsbury later this month. So uh British listeners can already pre-order, and uh, which will also be published later uh, this year in in in, in the US. Uh, I suppose the the general gist of the book is is really the need to remember the horrific episodes of the 20th century history. Uh, one of our earlier guests on this podcast, Peter Pomerantsev, called the book obviously a masterpiece. So. So I'm not sure uh, we can trump that that endorsement. And I was thinking it would be useful to to get her on the program to, I mean, talk about the fairly uh, uh, fairly sad subject, uh, namely war crimes and how how one deals with war crimes. So so we've seen all these images from from Bucha and Mariupol and and other places in Ukraine, uh, which have prompted calls for. I would some call a second Kharkiv tri tribunal in reference to the 1943 trial uh, by, by 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 Soviet military court of uh, of Nazi uh, collaborators and 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 and, and German officers. Uh, we've seen these Twitter memes of of road signs pointing all to the Hague, addressing I suppose a Russian officialdom. And there are many very peculiar things about sort of war crime trials. They they don't rest on primarily they don't rest on sort of statutory law of 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 of, of nation states, but but seem to make appeal to to higher authorities. Uh, they are not just about sort of immediate criminal liability of individual people, but but they're also about sort of set, setting the historic record straight. Uh, oftentimes for for generations, they are about dealing with sort of wider societal trauma uh in the context of this war there are all these sort of geopolitical ramifications some people from the realist camp say that we shouldn't be talking too much about war crimes and war crime trials because that somehow raises the stakes for 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 putin and his circle making it harder for him to de-escalate uh i don't find that claim particularly convincing but we can get to it maybe later uh, But I was hoping that that Linda, you wouldn't help us make sense of, you know, what what war crime trials are for, how they work, 
what the sort of historic patterns that are relevant for the present might be and and then maybe we can go deeper into what seems to be uh the sort of core 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 message of your of your book as it pertains not only to ukraine but but more importantly to your home country of 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 latvia and 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 the holocaust so 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 linda why don't you get us started with some initial thoughts on war crime trials Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here and grateful for the occasion to begin to talk through some of these things. Um, I think the first thing I would point out, um, uh, there's been a lot of discussion right now about returning to the Nuremberg moment and kind of conjuring up the legacy of the Nuremberg trial and kind of revisiting it in the form that it was originally constituted, which is that of a special military tribunal. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of the listeners have seen that there is a substantial initiative underway right now, led by Philippe Sams, to constitute some kind of similar tribunal for crimes in Ukraine. I think this is a really interesting proposal and one that I could see getting off the ground in the future. And if we're looking back to Nuremberg, the important thing that I always think about is that at the time that it opened in 1945, it was very much a trial about what happened in Eastern Europe. At the time, the evidence from what had been perpetrated upon Western Europe, and for instance, a lot of the information about um, the gas chambers and the concentration camps had not yet come out. They still hadn't discovered the minutes of the Wannsee conference, for instance. And so what we did have was actually a lot of evidence, witness testimony, but also forensic evidence that Soviet investigators had themselves collected of what is called the Holocaust by bullets, which was perpetrated all over the Eastern Front. Um, and one of the things that I've heard over and over from Ukrainian historians and researchers um, is that, you know, in every town in Ukraine, there is a site like this. You know, we all know the story of Babi Yar, which is the lar largest Holocaust mass grave in Eastern Europe. And many, many people would say to me, you know, in every town there is a Baba Yar here. And unfortunately, now that we're seeing images come out of Bucha, the fear is again that this is, you know, kind of once again the case. You mentioned, and I'm curious, I did some readings about it, but very little. Uh, you mentioned the, um, the Soviet Union's role in Nuremberg. And Maybe this is a starting point to start to to understand, to look at the issue of what their role has been, which we don't really comprehend entirely um, in this um, Nuremberg trial in itself. I've seen some parallels in terms of language that now we're people drawing between the language of Putin and what has happened there. So maybe you can help us make sense of that. And, and I guess the question, the big question that I have is, to what extent do you already see patterns in, in uh, re repetitive patterns as we're looking into the first war crimes in 2022 of this war um, and in parallel to the first findings, as you were suggesting, from Nuremberg? Yes. Well, I'll answer the f last question first, which is, you know, uh, the parallels are 
abundant and, you know, in many instances, painfully obvious because these atrocities are being perpetrated in many cases on the very same ground. People are still working this out in real time. There are many different groups right now working in and around Ukraine to collect as much evidence as possible. And what that means is scraping social media channels, taking taking posts from Telegram, preserving the metadata as fast as possible, and then going back and doing kind of historical work to see what else was perpetrated on those grounds during World War II um, and subsequently, you know? So I think both structurally and geographically, there are extreme similarities. I think in terms of legal proceedings, you know, there's been discussion about whether you pursue it, you know, the language of the Nuremberg trials is um, crimes of aggression, crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, and of course, genocide. My opinion is that everything that is going on right now in Ukraine can fit within those categories. I'm not sure that we would need to create new categories to describe what is happening. And that, in fact, the law would be strengthened if we kind of stick with that structure of international law that we created in 1945. Um, But to your previous question about the Soviet role, I think this is so important to understand because it also changes how we see Nuremberg. And of course, the person whose work has documented this most extensively is Francine Hirsch, whose books, whose book, The Soviets at Nuremberg, came out, I believe, in 2020. Um, and it's really a fascinating and comprehensive history of this. And she really documents how the Soviets were determined, even while the war was ongoing, to begin staging trials. And these were often dismissed by Western observers as show trials. And in many instances, they were. There was the Krasnodar trial and the Kharkov trial, and then the Riga trial. Um, And all of these were very quick proceedings. Um, The Krasnodar trial was not, it was the first war crimes trial of World War II, but it was not of Germans. It was about, uh, it was um, of Soviet uh, traitors, as they called them. And then the Kharkov trial was the first real trial of German soldiers who had been complicit in war crimes. And that is the trial that you understandably see being revisited in this moment, right? There's calls by Ukrainians for another Kharkov tribunal, you know, hashtag Nuremberg 2022 is what they're calling it. Um, And you could see why the idea of that would be extremely symbolic, right? Because Kharkov has been one of the cities that has been destroyed the most and also the city that has been, you know, so consistently under threat, not just in this latest part of the war, but also kind of continuously since 2013, 2014, when Russia first invaded. Let me ask you something. It's it's a semi-follow-up question. One of the kind of hidden reasons why I was asking you about the role of the Soviets in the Nuremberg trials is, on the other hand, what seems baffling to me, and this is a, a debate or a, an issue that I've seen coming up again um, in this war in 2022, and I wonder to what extent you've looked into this. The fact when when the Russians in um, 
in February started talking about the Nazis in Ukraine. Um, in here in the West, we didn't understand what they were talking about. And I think we still don't because, um, and I've seen this question asked over and over again with my students as well. Um, how do we conceive or how do we understand of how Russia former Soviet Union has processed World War II in that the word Nazi for them and what they associate with World War II, what is being taught in school, is that Nazis are bad, but the issue of genocide against Jews, uh, the issue of Holocaust, what we in the West primarily associate with World War II, is mostly unknown to them. Um, they don't, they study the role that the Soviet Union had in defeating Nazi Germany, but very little about the centrality of genocide against Jews that is central to us. And so to them, Nazi obviously then means something very different. So have you looked into this? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I'm not sure of the extent to which it's, you know, accurate to say that they're not aware of what was perpetrated against Jews. It's certainly true that that is the tradition in which um, first the Soviets kind of described what occurred. You know, these were crimes against quote unquote peaceful Soviet citizens. Um, and indeed the Soviet extraordinary commission, which was created specifically to collect evidence and collect witness testimonies. It was called, you know, the commission, uh, to investigate fascist crimes perpetrated against peaceful Soviet citizens um, in the occupied territory and then on various, you know, the various occupied states and cities. So, and you can see it in the language all over the Eastern Front. But I do think things changed in the 90s and early 2000s in particular, where you did get to see, as everywhere, you got this kind of outpouring of memorialization efforts Um to really try to commemorate what occurred. I do think what you're saying about, you know, this kind of moment of confusion about Russia's use of the word Nazi in this war is so emblematic of this kind of general perversion of history, which is so important to them in their mm. framing, right? That this, this, in, this invasion is a continuation of the legacy of the Great Patriotic War, This is kind of our duty to liberate Russian speakers from oppression, mm -hmm. you know, and there are all of these historical resonances um, because, of course, many of the Jews in the former Soviet Union were Russian speakers. It's kind of perfectly designed to push at these pressure points that are very familiar to all of us um, from the region or who have studied the region. Um, and I think because so much of the evidence that came out of their forensic kind of investigations had to do with crimes of genocide committed on the territory of Ukraine specifically, it's a very easy thing to exploit, to exploit this narrative, you know, that like all Ukrainians are complicit, all Ukrainians participated in genocide. So I want to come back to this question of how 
history gets sort of rewritten and whitewashed and 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 revisited by different political regimes but but before we go there i wonder if i could ask you a very practical and hard-nosed question so so when people talk about you know kharkiv tribunal 2.0 or nuremberg 2022 uh i think it's sort of useful to think through what it would take in practical terms for something like that to to materialize so you know nazi germany was thoroughly defeated occupied by by allied forces um and and therefore had no no say in whether uh, representatives of its former regime would be put on trial or not after the balkans wars I mean, it took you know a bit of political bargaining, I suppose, and 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 pressure for the West for for Milosevic to actually face trial in The Hague. I don't think the prospect of Russia being defeated in the same way Nazi Germany was defeated in the Second World War is quite in the cards. Nor do I think that we should be also organizing our planning around the possibility of of a, of a breakdown of, of 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 Putin's regime and the future Russian government extraditing. You know the Gerasimovs and Shoigu's and and Putin's to, to 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 the Hague. So so what would have to sort of fall into place for 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 a trial of any kind to to take place? Unless you are going to put on trial just you know like captured Russian officers who might be implicated in 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 war, war crimes. What was the sort of menu of options like looking looking at history and and and, and how likely these different options might be? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, what you just mentioned at the end, this possibility of trying um, prisoners of war by kind of, I could see a very realistic scenario in which Ukrainian courts and prosecutors do pursue those kinds of cases. And I do think that's, you know, I don't want to say the most likely, but it might be the most practical at this moment. The other, you know, and of course, we know that the ICC is pursuing its own investigation. And we don't know yet what will come of that or what form that will take or what kinds of indictments we might see and whether not to say nothing of whether they will be actionable. Um, and then, of course, you have this idea for a special tribunal, which would be aimed specifically at, you know, the, the equivalent of the higher command, of course, and also potentially the propagandists who, you know, I think there's a very good argument to be made about why they are part of this war effort, right? Literally justifying it in real time and kind of giving the talking points. So that's one form. To be honest, I've been thinking a lot about the MH17 trial that's currently ongoing in the Netherlands at the District Court of The Hague, because first of all, you know, that is part of this war. It is a, you know the most visible ongoing trial that I know of about an event that was perpetrated by Russian-affiliated soldiers against peaceful civilians, and it is still ongoing. It has been a highly, highly mediated trial. Every single session has been live-streamed, and only one of the four defendants has even retained counsel. The other three are, of course, being tried in absentia. And what's really interesting about that, you know, I think... Everyone who is involved in putting that together, and it truly is a feat if you look at some of the material coming out of there, there seems to be an understanding that whatever verdict is reached, 
will, of course, be absolutely insufficient to the crime that was committed. And so one of the best ways that we have in this unfortunate situation that we're in is to actually make the trial itself a verdict, to make this airing of testimonies and presentation of the evidence incontrovertible such that you have a judgment in, you know, the public sphere, right? So you, you know, and one of my favorite legal thinkers, James Boyd White says, you know, the judge's job is never over until his verdict is accepted by the public. He says it much more elegantly, you know, and I think in this case, they've accepted that even though the kind of justice that they will be able to deliver will be, um, you know, so paltry, they can at least deliver something to the kind of international community and certainly to the victims' families. It strikes me that like one of the things about, for example, the, the, the Kharkiv trial of 1943, which included, involved like fairly low level figures, was that those people went on the record admitting to their crimes and, and sort of describing them in, 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 in some detail. And then I think the Soviets translated it into English, got circulated and and, and, and just sort of establishing this as a sort of basic historic record is a is, is valuable in and of itself. And uh, obviously that becomes much trickier in an era in which it looks like Russia is living in its own information universe yeah. in which nothing is true and everything is possible. Um, so, 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 so how do you think, I suppose, a, a prospective trial should sort of deal with this question of, of a sort of radically different information environment from, from the one that, that previous war crime tribunals took place in? Yeah, I suppose my answer is that it's not necessarily something that we should look to law to certainly not solve, but even, you know, act upon. I think one of the things that really struck me about what you mentioned earlier, you know, the road signs in Ukraine directing Russian soldiers that all roads lead to the Hague, you know, I keep thinking about that because it seemed to me to be this um, way of placing our faith and support and our hope in this entity, you know, of international law, international criminal courts, which we know, as you say, kind of deliver these insufficient and very prolonged forms of justice. And, you know, for me, the way I cope with this incredible disappointment, or I don't know if it's a disappointment, but it's more of like a realism about what law is, as we've constructed it, is to think about, okay, it's not law's job to do it cannot do everything it cannot serve universal purposes every single trial has been you know that we've been talking about today was framed as a kind of victor's justice and those are very fair characterizations i think of what they were that doesn't mean they weren't justice you know they were um effective in delivering certain messages and in preserving certain facts for the record and certainly testimonies for the record But I do think, you know, one thing a trial can do is it can influence a narrative. You can, mm. you know, there's a reason why we love procedurals. And there is this kind of, I think that's behind this all roads lead to the Hague. You know, it's it's a want to know what the end of the story is and to have a faith that it will end in justice. And probably, unfortunately, it will not, but we might have some 
approximation of it. That's interesting that you say that. Um, it it seems to me, and let me know if I got this right, that it's also a matter of people in Ukraine and, and beyond, I know I need this, needing to see justice being served. I don't know if you've seen the second stamp that won the, um, the competition. The first one was of the Ukrainian soldier showing the middle finger to the Moskva. Um, the second one is of, and it's so visual, is of Putin being held um, in, in a prisoner's uniform, being held um, by the neck, kind of suggesting by, by two um, uh, security officers, suggesting he's being dragged to trial. And so I'll put this thing um, out because I know it's pretty spectacular and maybe it helps make sense in the region. We've been focusing a lot in the region, whether that's World War II or beyond, um, on exactly what you're saying, law, um, but other things can have different effects in terms of trials. And of course, that's not a parallel, but I think that speaks into the needing. At the end of the communist regime in Romania, where I'm from, there was a trial against the dictator and his wife, who was politically um, very much involved as well. Um, but it was an improvised trial. It was put on camera. And at the end, of that trial, um, he and his wife were put against the wall and shot in front of the camera. And Romanians watch that every single year before Christmas. Um, so I don't, it's very brutal, but it tells you something, I guess, about the need to see justice in a way or another being served. And though they're not connected, I want to throw this one thing out. Um, because I think it's what everybody's thinking about. What's the issue in your understanding about the difference between branding what is happening in Ukraine as war crimes versus genocide? Joe Biden versus Macron in the essence where Macron and a lot of Europeans were asking, why is this happening? Was saying, I don't want to brand it as, as genocide. This is wrong. Um, they're Slavic brothers and an insult like that. Um, so help us make sense of that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, um, you know, on the question of war crimes versus genocide, I suppose the reasoning... <laughs> behind Macron's hesitance is that there's this idea that it, if he dares to say that it is a genocide, he will have to actually be responsible for taking a more forceful stance. I do believe that genocide is the right word to use here. I think, especially if you think about it in the kind of fulsome meaning of the term, it's not just the erasure of a people or a nation. It's also the erasure of the evidence. It's the erasure of their culture. It's the attempt to kind of totally wipe them off the map. And as we're seeing in Ukraine in so many instances, you know, Russian soldiers going into classrooms and ripping up textbooks of Ukrainian history, you know, trying to destroy Ukrainian cultural treasures, literally kind of destroying grain stocks. It's just in my mind that it's not a question. And I do think that if we think about genocide in this kind of more capacious way, I don't even mean that, you know, it's a, like, how can you even think about absolute destruction more capaciously? I guess I'm just saying like, if you understand what that fully means um, and the Armenian scholar 
Mark Michanian um, in his work about the Armenian genocide, I think, writes very forcefully about mm. this. Um, because, of course, the perpetrator destroys the evidence, which makes it that much more impossible for the survivor to testify to what they have seen. And I think the example that you gave about the Romanian trial is so forceful, right? And it is this kind of, those are the episodes, you know, that we revisit time and time again. There's a reason why we continue coming back to Nuremberg or even, you know, now to the Kharkiv trial, because there's this like inescapable historical resonance. And the last thing I will say is um, part of what I've been thinking a lot about um, and to Dalibor's point about how um, Krasnodar and Kharkov were the kind of lower level people in Riga um, during, while Nuremberg was ongoing, there was what was called uh, like little Nuremberg mm. that was in Riga and it, Friedrich Jachelm, who was one of the architects of the Holocaust by bullets in Eastern Europe. He's the one who, oversaw the killing actions in Babi Yar and then later in the Baltic states, he was tried there and he was hung in a public square in what is now Freedom Square. <laughs> and, you know, it was just this very <laughs> kind of like shocking moment and survivors keep returning to that moment in their memoirs. So yeah, I totally agree with you that there is this kind of need and desire and like without question, we will need something like that. And there's another... Ukrainian artist, she's been drawing images of Putin in the guise of these war criminals, like these famous images of war criminals that we're all familiar with, um, Demyan Yuk or Eichmann, like these kind of world historical trials. She's been drawing them with Putin's face on them, you know, just so we can imagine what, what this kind of justice yeah. might mean. So Linda, I was struck um, by something you said earlier, that sort of this yearning for, uh, for, for having a trial and 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 justice being served um is connected to you know our desire to to see how things end and of course they don't right and uh, you see that i mean in latvia where some of these figures from the 90s and, and 40s and their memory is being whitewashed you see it although there were no trials but you see you, know, you see it in russia itself where like this monster figure of Stalin is being rehabilitated and and celebrated. So, so, so if you have any thoughts on, is there a way how to design these trials, uh, make them rest on as wide a legitimacy as possible, or 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 you know, like what what kind of sort of bells and whistles are needed uh, for for those trials to have a sort of lasting impact and and really be the end uh, of 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 these various horror episodes. Yeah. Or or are we just sort of condemned to, you know, like rewatching uh the Ceausescu video every year? Uh I mean, as far as are we condemned, I mean, I'm not an optimist by nature, but um I I don't know. I think if I had, you know, if someone came to me and said, "Okay, design a tribunal." Um I would want to see all the bells and whistles that are actually now being deployed in the MH17 trial, but more. You know, I think every single proceeding should be digitized, live streamed, translated across every possible language. I think it should be a coalition of nations that have representatives among the prosecution. Obviously, that that is an extremely complicated thing to do because you also need to determine what legal framework you will be using, what precedent will be relevant, who will be the judges, how many judges, that kind of thing, all surmountable 
things that a lot of people are thinking about right now. And I do think we are seeing, you know, if there's any hope and it is perhaps with the very, very robust effort at evidence collection that many governments are pursuing right now in their own way. Um, I've seen images at, you know, train stations in London or and airports saying, you know, did are you coming from Ukraine? Did you witness anything? If so, here's the number to call. Here's the email to write to, you know, and similarly in other nations. So obviously there's a great risk of duplication, you know, maybe we shouldn't worry about that too much. I do think there's so much momentum and so much creativity and so much will uh, among Ukrainians to see real justice that I hope that even if, you know, the international community doesn't end up putting together a special tribunal, that we can at least see something from the Ukrainians themselves. Um, And God knows they have Um, enough forums and enough power to do that. And it would be extremely meaningful and forceful. And I can, yeah, only imagine what kind of feeling that would bring. You have now been rejoined in uh, Zencaster studio uh, by our friend Giselle Donnelly. Um, Not sure if she has a question uh, or... So one thing that has really struck me is that with modern, all kinds of modern technology, um, there's an opportunity to document atrocities uh, down to a much lower level of um, responsibility than maybe it was done in the past. Um, So I'm, I'm wondering if you can speculate how that might work, whether it's entirely wise to be as thoroughgoing as possible or conversely, would it be a terrible mistake not to take full advantage of this opportunity as a deterrent for the future? But again, just more broadly, uh, given the fact that, and we have facial recognition technologies and all that kind of stuff, how that might affect tribunals, post-war tribunals? I mean, it's a really good question, and of course, it's that is one of the things that makes this war and these conversation, uh, conversations about what justice would look like truly not novel, but in terms of volume, I think, unique. Um, because, of course, we've seen similar media I, objects come out of Syria um, and other places. And those have been put to use in the few trials that have occurred. Um, notably in Dortmund, where there was just the first trial of um, Syrian perpetrators that concluded a few months ago. So the problem, though, is that courts have not uniformly caught up to where media is right now. And so, like, for instance, the ICC has a really robust program, and they have been working on this for many years. They've been convening forensic analysts, lawyers, Um, prosecutors from all over the world to deal with this problem, knowing that it was going to happen, knowing that they were going to be confronted with this proliferation of digital evidence. And they were going to have to come up with a way to determine what could be admissible and what could not. Um, So, and there's this um, researchers at the Berkeley Center for Human Rights came up with the Berkeley Protocol in collaboration with the United Nations 
2021, which was kind of the first methodology for what to do with digital evidence and how to preserve it, you know, like keep the original files in a locker, quarantine them, scrape metadata, make sure that you have the HTML code of every single post that you might be using so that no one can claim that you've doctored it in any way. So we do have these tools and techniques. I think the other difference is that for those of us, obviously, who are not in Russia, we see the evidence on our social media feeds and we don't necessarily need more. We see it. It's the proof. It's not a whodunit, you know? And that is why I think there's two things going on. There's one, the narrative that's circulating circulating among the publics, right? The both public that has access to these images and the public that doesn't. And then there's also the question of what will they be doing in the legal fora, right? So I don't know. I think it's um, an amazing thing that we have all these things and it just will very much shape kind of whatever the ending looks like as we were discussing before. Linda Kinsler, thank you so much for for joining us for this enlightening conversation from me, Julia Zorja, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and Dalibur Ruhaj. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod in one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.